Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analyst, the only podcast that thinks managers should take part in penalty shootouts. My name is Cameron McDonald, and I've spent three years working as an FA license intermediary here in the UK. My co-host, Rupert Meadows, has written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Kidney Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. And thanks to you guys. This is episode 52, which means we've been putting these out for a whole year today. Way. <laughs> Way indeed. Uh, we'll get right into the football, but just wanted to say a quick thanks for listening, and we hope you keep enjoying them all. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. And uh, now, what have we got this week? So, uh, I think this one pretty much writes itself, as match day one of Euro 2020 is coming to a close, and the tournament has not let us down so far. We'll be taking a look at which side's got it right, which side's got it wrong, and a player to watch out for from each of the six groups. As always, timestamps are in the description, and kicking us off with some controversy... Has anything surprised you yet? And what's your rogue shout for the tournament, Cam? Uh, well, you know that I love a good rogue shout. I know you love one as well, so I'm, so I'm really excited to get into that. But surprises, um, the two main things that have surprised me about this tournament so far, and I know we're only in the sort of first match day, but the two things that have slightly surprised me is, firstly, we've not really had any shocking upsets. We've had like a few games where there have been sort of like late draws, like Wales, Switzerland was maybe one, or Spain, Sweden was another one the other day. But we haven't had sort of any big giant killings or or really upset, um, you know, games that you didn't expect to go that way in a million years. So I think that's quite interesting because it's often in these international tournaments, the first round of games where you sort of get that splash of cold water, realizing that everyone sort of overrated one team or underrated another. Um, and the other thing that's been a really nice surprise is that we haven't really had any VAR controversy yet, to the best of my knowledge. Unless I'm sort of skipping over on something, for the most part, VAR has gone off without a hitch, which on the one hand is great to see in a tournament, and on the other hand is really damning towards Premier League referees. Yeah, true. Absolutely right. I mean, obviously, any sort of thing is going to be um, an indictment on Premier League referees, and we just can't keep pretending. And not that I don't think anyone is anymore. Um, that we've got a good system here because clearly it, it's not. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Um, there haven't been too many shocking upsets. I would say that, you know, Italy and Netherlands probably have, have looked the sharpest of any team so far. And obviously that's not surprising because they're always going to be in contention for, you know, the, the major accolades as, as some of the biggest footballing nations in the world. But I guess I've been slightly surprised at how I'd say, you know, They've just come out and looked pretty strong. Italy especially. I didn't imagine... They've kind of fallen fallen under the radar for me a little bit. Um, And they just look really solid in their 3-0 win against Turkey. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Both of those teams are sort of massive historic nations. And it's almost sort of like the surprise is what they've been up to for the last sort of six, seven years. If they've not been as good as they they sort of usually are. And now, at least from this first round of games, it looks like they're back to the, the peak of their powers. Um, well, we we shall see about peak of the powers, but definitely, um, you know, they've they've started back, pretty back to well. Obviously, ways, at least. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, and then I would say the the other thing that's surprised me, and and this might be, I mean, feel free to tell me I'm wrong, but um, I would say it's more of an observation. But it feels like this tournament is going to rely a lot less on tactics and more on physicality. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's because. Players around Europe will maybe be a little bit more mentally drained than normal because it's been such a weird couple of years and maybe they've not been able to travel with their squads as much. They've not been able to train as a squad as much as a national team. But I don't know, it just feels like we've seen so far already some really dominant, aggressive attacking play being rewarded. Um, You know, players like 
because Switzerland's Imbolo looked really powerful. Wales's George up front, um, Lukaku obviously, Patrick Schick, even someone like Netherlands's like Depay, you know, looked really powerful in his direct running. Um, so I don't know. That's just something else that's kind of felt like a little bit of, of something that I've noticed. Yeah, I think it's, the physicality thing is definitely true. It's been a bit of a big striker summer. We've got like loads of really tall strikers doing really well at the tournament at the moment, which is uh, just quite enjoyable um, and definitely a few that we'll be talking about in, in this episode. Um, rogue shout for the tournament. Have you got a good rogue shout or do you want me to start off? I've got an interesting one. I mean, I you might tell me that this is kind of boring, but I, I quite like it. My rogue shout of this tournament is Spain are not going to make it out of the group stages. You know what's crazy is I'm looking at my notes and that's exactly what I've got for Rogue Shoot Spain to go out in the groups. That's your Rogue Shoot as well? That is also my Rogue This was not pre-planned, by the way. <laughs> is that actually? It, it is, yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I really don't fancy them as a team. Um, and it's one of those things where Group E, we talked about this last episode, how if England finish first, they'll play the sort of um, second place team from Group F. And if they finish, first, if they finish second, they'll play the second place team from Group E. Yes. And it's one of those things that I've been looking at Group E quite closely as result, and I've been really impressed with the quality of defending from all the sides. Obviously, we saw Sweden sort of hold that nil-nil against Spain, and the Poland-Slovakia game, although it was a 2-1, it had to be sort of broken open by moments of individual brilliance, because both of them had really strong blocks. Yeah, definitely. And I think that part of it is because, you know, Spain have crashed out of major tournaments before in recent memory. The the one in 2014 going out in the group stages with that iconic loss to the Netherlands being the one that sticks in the mind. Um, but the main statistic that I saw that worried me was that they had 75% possession in this game, the highest percentage of any team that's played so far. And with that, we were able to create very few chances. And really, the only good one was one which they didn't create. It was just handed to them by Sweden from a defensive error and, and one which Alvaro Morata completely folded on. So, yeah, I just feel like it, there's, there's, it's a really bloated squad. They've got loads of good midfielders, no real attacking firepower, and and their defence doesn't look exceptional. So yeah, it's that's funny that we've picked the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's gonna it's gonna be great when they do go go through top of the group. No, but I, I definitely agree. Oh, they they don't have a lot of attacking quality. A lot of their games are probably going to play out in a similar fashion to the Sweden game. I did think of the the Sweden game. You know, Sweden had a goal cleared off the line. Um, the Alexander Isaac one that got cleared off by Marcus Llorente. And then you look at some of the selections that have been made. Marcus Llorente, who's been starting at right back, he started right back in this game. He's a midfielder, and you've got Aspilicueta, who's a right back that's just started in the final of the Champions League and won it. Was sat on the bench. Gerard Moreno, who has done really well in La Liga this season and obviously played for that Villarreal side that won the Europa League, has was left out in favour of Alvaro Morata, who had absolute stinker. Pedri, who has had a pretty good season for Barcelona, but is 18 years old, he's pretty raw. He's been started over players like Thiago Silva and Pablo Sarabia. So, yeah, there's just a lot of different things. And and above all, they just don't really look like they're on the same wavelength to me. Um, And that's something that definitely could change over the course of the groups, but it just doesn't seem like everyone's on the same page. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you that it seems like a team without a collective identity. And you just do need that, that kind of almost like hive mindset if you're ever going to do well in a tournament like this. And it's something that they've really, you know, had in spades in the past and they haven't really had that same magic ever since, I would say, 2014. Um, So there you go. Those are our combined takes. (laughs) 
I'm, I'm, I'm funny that we've agreed on that. Let's say I was expecting you to go for like a weird winner or another like top team to get knocked out. But yeah, we've both uh, both locked in on Spain. Um, moving into Group A. So the way we're going to be doing this uh, for you listeners, we're going to be going through the groups, looking at some of the games, and uh, Rupert and I are going to take turns to pick out a player that we suggest everyone watch out for because they're a great player. Um, and hopefully it's not someone that everyone's heard of. Um, the player that I've gone for to watch out for in Group A is a player I've talked about on the podcast before. He's a player I really like, and that's Italy's Domenico Birardi. Um, we talked about him back in the winter winter transfers episode, I believe, and we were talking about sort of Premier League players, Premier League teams that could strengthen by bringing someone in. And Berardi's one of those players that I've always really considered to be a bit like um, like a Mario Balotelli or like a Ross Barkley as well, who has like little glimpses every now and again of world class talent, but has never had the right platform to do it consistently. He's done really, really well in Syria this season for Sassuolo. And now that he's coming into this Italy team that is looking really, really good, I think this could be a tournament where he has a bit like um, James Rodriguez for Colombia back in the 2014 World Cup, just really show off with a, with a team that's a little bit more imperious than Sassuolo. Um, I think just he's so versatile in terms of what he can do in that in that front three. He plays as a forward, he plays as a winger, he can even play as an attacking midfielder. And it just means that you don't know what he's going to do when he has the ball coming into the final third because he is equally capable of sort of drifting wide and firing it across, which he did for to sort of create the opening goal of the tournament. He could drive through himself and have a go on goal or he could make a killer pass. So he is one of those players that anytime he's starting, anytime he's on the ball, really worth watching. Um, and I think if Italy do have a great tournament, he's going to be one of the key players in that effort. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, just he, he's got such a stable career in that he's been, um, you know, at his club Sassuolo since 2010 as a youth player um, and just, um, you know, really looks like he is going to be one of the mainstays of that side. So, yeah, I definitely, definitely back that decision. And as we said, Italy are going to be an exciting team to, to look out for throughout the tournament. Well, into the games. I mean, Italy have sort of become like they're they're the popular option for people to say are like an outside shout now. They're sort of like they're not even the outside shout anymore because so many people have gone like, oh, Italy could do it, and then obviously that helped when they kicked off the tournament with such a good, such a good win, three nil. Um, and I've seen a lot of people saying of this game like, oh, it's only Turkey, like it's not that big a deal. But Turkey are not a bad side at the moment. They've got a lot of top players who played for um, Barak Yilmaz, Zeki Selic, and uh, Yusuf Sasiji all played for Lille when they won Ligue 1. Chalin Lolu plays for Milan. Suyuncu, of course, we know from Leicester in the Prem. And OK Yakuslu joined West Brom alone and was one of the few players this season when you were watching West Brom at the back end who you would go, he's actually pretty good. So... Firstly, Turkey, I think, are quite an interesting side. Also, I think the fact that Italy beat them 3-0 isn't just, oh, Turkey are bad, but it's just Italy were really dominant in this game. And it took them a while to break Turkey down. The first half was goalless. But once they got into that game, the floodgates just opened. Yeah, and it feels like, as you said, like the floodgates opened. Their attack was kind of really starting to click towards the end of that second half. And they look like someone that's ready to, you know, like really push on and make that their statement game to start this tournament with a bang. So yeah, uh, yeah, like it. It, Just interestingly, because this is something that when I was thinking about all these games and it came up a lot when I was watching these games, quite a few of these games started really slowly and then like either in the second half or like 60 minutes in, everything sort of fell into place. And I was wondering why that was. Do you think that that's maybe just a symptom of international tournaments? And so, like, most of these players either haven't really played together for a while or they've played, like, one or two friendlies. And so it is literally, you can almost see the pieces falling into place because it was the same here. It was the same you, sort of a little bit for um, the Netherlands um, uh, 
Netherlands versus Ukraine game, which obviously had five goals, but no goals in the first half. There was another one that was a really good good game that sort of didn't quite get going until the second half. Um, and even the ones that did that, not necessarily with the goals. I just found that a lot of these games took a while to sort of open up. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think um, maybe the other thing just to mention is that there are a lot of young players in this tournament this year. Um, there are even a couple of new sides that have, you know, not had many runouts in major tournaments. So there'll be a lot of nerves flying around, and there'll be a lot of kind of nervousness at the beginning, a lot of hesitancy, uh, maybe not feeling like they're fully settled in their teams, as you say. And it, uh, yeah, not surprising that it just takes them a moment or two to to really build into it, which I guess is is also why someone like Italy can really capitalise because. They are a slightly more established team. Someone like Netherlands have played together for a decent amount of time. Um, whereas, you know, teams that you only have one player in each team uh, across Europe maybe will we'll struggle a little bit more. Struggle to find, to find that chemistry. I think Italy, the other thing that's worth sort of noting about them as we sort of move through this tournament Um there's a few teams like this. England's not one of them, but Italy could potentially have a really nice draw for the round of 16 because Group A, whoever finishes first, plays the second place team from Group C, which is a group consisting of the Netherlands, Ukraine, Austria and North Macedonia. Probably the Netherlands win that group, so it means you're playing probably either Ukraine or Austria, um, which is one of the better draws, you, you would, you'd probably say. Yeah, true. I mean, Austria, I think, can probably surprise anyone in this tournament. Um, they, they look, again, like quite a solid one. But yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. Um, one to look out for. Let's move into Wales versus Switzerland to top off Group A. Well, yeah, Wales versus Switzerland was uh, another one of those games where it was a, a player who I've really liked for ages, Breland Bolo. Um, you know, he, he's one of those guys that feels like he's been around forever, despite the fact that he's 24, because he's been playing for so young, for such a long time. And he's always been another one of those players that's always sort of threatened to be good, but he's never quite had that enormous move. He plays for Monch and Gladbach at the moment, but there's always been sort of a thought that he could move to the Prem or a, or a big European side or a bigger European side anyway. And it sort of never really materialised. And this is... I've only seen him play live a few times, but this was definitely the best game I'd ever seen him. Um, sort of, Switzerland were kind of struggling in the first half, and this was another one where he came out after the break and was just like, right, Harris Seferovic is not going to give me any help. I'm just going to pick up the ball from midfield and just run through like 10 Welsh players and have a shot. Um, and he just absolutely ran that game. And the only reason that Switzerland didn't win that game was because Imbolo was the second best player on the pitch. The best player on the pitch was Danny Ward in between the sticks for Wales. He really did have an unbelievable game. Um, and yeah, what an amazing stop in the... Was it in the second half? Yeah, to stop in Bolo. Um, I'd take your pick. There were so many. Yeah, I mean... Um, it was an interesting game, actually. I quite enjoyed it because this is one where... You know, obviously these teams where haven't really played each other many times. They they have very such different squads that to put them together in, in this tournament format is, is fun to... Just be, do you know what I mean? Just, just watch it and see what happens. Um, because, you know, I personally did not know what was going to happen from this game, and I almost quite liked the fact that someone like Gareth Bale didn't dominate it. I quite liked the fact that Aaron Ramsey was good, but not wildly effective. What we really saw was players like I don't know, Kiefer Moore standing out, and Danny Ward, as you mentioned, Joe Roden um, at the back as well had a great match. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that. 
I mean, yeah, the, the heroes for Wales were Danny Ward and whoever their set-piece coach is, basically. Um, because, <laughs> obviously, Kiefer Moore scored that goal. But it was one of those things. It was like the whole game, you knew that if... It was one of those things where you knew that if he was going to score a goal, it was going to be that kind of goal, but you couldn't really do anything about it. And it was a great little bit of a routine coming off that corner, a few nice passes, and then a great cross into it. And it was one of those goals I watched. I was like, I bet Sean Dyke is sitting at home right now salivating. You are probably not far off. Um, but yeah, no, a great game from both teams. Really exciting stuff and interesting to see, you know, you know which one of these teams comes second in the group um, or indeed which team comes first if anyone can give Italy a bit of a bloody nose because I think all of them have played a, a good, good sort of style of football that I'm interested to see more of so far. Um, yeah, it's cool because you, you look at both of those teams and you just think either one could have a smash and grab a win against Italy. I agree with that. Mm. Looking at Group B, who is your player to watch out for from this group? So I have kind of based this off, I guess, the results, at least in part, because we're looking at these groups having seen um, them play a game all. Um, And obviously Denmark had a a tough game against Finland because of of Christian Eriksen. And, um, Mm. you know, I I don't think anyone in the world can can begrudge them that. Um, It must have been so hard mentally just to even be able to string some passes together let alone you know put together a performance that's going to win you an international match um but belgium kind of took apart russia quite comfortably but i wouldn't say that any of their players are players that we don't know about so i i'm I'm going to pick a finished player just because they did get three points against denmark and they could well finish second in the group um there are a couple of couple of key players that came out of it. Um, obviously, you know, Hradecki, the goalkeeper, was always going to be a really important player for them. And, and he had a great game. Um, Arajuri as well um, looked really good um, in defence. And I think Finland ha- had the most tackles of any team so far in the tournament. So that defensive solidity is going to be really important. The player that I've chosen to kind of highlight is someone that, you know, we know his name very well, but but less in a footballing sense and more for um, what has happened elsewhere in the game, which is Glenn Kamara. Right, yeah, no, good good pick. And already actually one who's had a lot of interest from Premier League clubs uh, this, this yeah, summer, I believe. Definitely. I mean, I think um, it looks like four or five clubs are all going to be competing for his signature. And he is kind of that engine room in uh, a very impressive Rangers side this year. And I think that obviously, you know, Finland's defence is going to be really crucial as I mentioned if they're going to progress anywhere but I think to, to be able to screen that defense well and to take the pressure off them and also to you know stop stop attacks from deep um, and to I guess just really control the tempo of the game and make sure that Finland aren't just like defending for 90 minutes the whole way through I think Kamara is really going to be the the linchpin that could well decide you know how how good a tournament they have in the end. Yeah, very true. Um, looking at the game, it was a sort of a weird one to, to talk on because obviously, as you say, Finland did get the three points. They beat Denmark 1-0, but the game was sort of massively overshadowed by Christian Eriksen's collapse. Um, and I just wanted to ask, you know, a few a few of your thoughts about this because obviously, just to start off, first and foremost, the good news is that he's stable. He came out with an Instagram post earlier today saying that he was fine under the circumstances. So that was great to hear because there was a horrific period of time where you just feared the worst. Um, and the other thing that was really great to see was that, you know, it's been a time recently for a lot of football fans of 
you know, not necessarily being proud of your community. So it was great to see football fans united throughout the rest of the game. The Finnish fans were chanting Christian and the Danish fans reply Ericsson. Um, seeing Ericsson's teammates being fantastic. Simon Kerr may well have saved his life by putting him in the recovery position and all of his teammates surrounding him to protect his dignity. So loads and loads of good stuff to absolutely love about that. The stuff that you have to ask about that's a little bit more, you know, nasty is things like, you know, you alluded to there, Denmark would have found it hard to even string a few passes together. Should that game have been restarted? I mean, the, the Danish manager has come out and said it shouldn't have been. Peter Schmeichel has come out and called it absolutely ridiculous. The players were visibly distraught at the restart. And Denmark went on to lose that from that point. And it it, it was the the goal that they conceded was a really bad mistake from Kasper Schmeichel. And then they had a penalty from Hoiberg, who was really unconvincing. And normally that's the kind of thing you'd say, oh, you know, how have you lost focus there? But how can you expect them to have been focused? What, what did you think about that? I think it's an impossible situation. I, I agree that the the match shouldn't have taken place immediately afterwards. I can imagine the logistical nightmare of trying to reschedule it was such that they just didn't feel like it was going to be possible. But it does feel like... The, the main thing I would say is it doesn't feel like Denmark were consulted. It doesn't feel like they they took the managers into one room or you know the chairman of, of the FA of each country, for example, and just said, like, look... How do we move through this together? I, I don't think that happened. I think it was a decision made by the tournament leaders rather than one with respect to the teams themselves. So, yeah, I, I agree. I don't think it should have happened um, because, you know, this is obviously such a shocking incident. And I don't know about you, but I actually kind of was surprised at how emotional I felt about it. Um, I was talking to a friend yeah, of mine well- who... Our friend, our close friend Will, who um, is like a massive, massive fan of um, Christian Eriksen. But I I was kind of, you know, quite emotional about it. It, it hit me hard, um, as I'm sure it hit a lot of people hard. And I just think the game should not have taken place after that. But perfectly normal. I think everyone was sort of hit very hard by it emotionally. It was just a very, a very full-on situation. And just a shame that, you know, it's a situation now that at least he's stable but Denmark have sort of had this this result as a result of it, and obviously that's the least important yeah. thing in the situation. But it just of, still kind of sucks. Of course, and yeah, I mean that their tournament could well be over now just because but on that yeah on that basis. And and in that sense, you can't you can't really say that that's a result of Christian Eriksen, um, you know, going down in the way that he did. It's a result of the fact that they were forced to play that game. So, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It, yeah, it just I, seemed like one of those things that like down the line people look back and go Jesus Christ that's the that's the care afforded to these players who've just had this really traumatic incident but it's it's you know, really bad I mean I just think that at least hold yourself accountable to the sense that like publish the notes of the meeting that you had talking about it and saying like we actually tried really hard to make this game happen at a different time but it it couldn't happen because of x y and z reasons like I, I could understand that if that was the case and I would say just like Fair enough, but that was just, it was what it was, and it's really sad. But I don't know, obviously, we're not going to get that transparency, and you do just always wonder how much effort was made and what could have been done differently. For sure. Um, looking at the next game of the group, which, as you mentioned there, was Belgium winning 3 0 against the Russian Federation. Um, and yeah, one of the other surprises that I had about this tournament when you sort of talk about surprises is that I, I don't know if this is just because Belgium are so accepted to be a good team, but people just haven't 
really been talking that much about Belgium. Like even earlier when we were talking about Italy, Netherlands, I don't know if it's just because everyone sort of assumes that Belgium will do well, but everyone's sort of been going like, oh, Italy could be a bit of a dark horse, but we haven't really had that much about Belgium, despite the fact that they've got a really, really solid team. They've got a relatively forgiving group. If they finish first, much like Italy, they'll play uh, a fairly a potentially easy draw because if they finish first, they'll play one of the third place teams that make it through. So in theory, one of the easier draws. Um, and they dominated this game without Kevin De Bruyne in the squad and with Eden Hazard not playing for the majority of the game. Um, so yeah, so it, it seems a bit weird to me maybe that there aren't more people. The sort of the popular call is saying like France or Portugal are going to win it, and the sort of dark horse one is Italy or the Netherlands. People aren't really talking about Belgium. I don't know if you agree, agree with that though. Yeah, I fully agree. I think that they're, they're being slept on a little bit just because you know Kevin De Bruyne has been out injured. Axel Witzel also you know quite key to their midfield balance has been out injured. Um, Eden Hazard's kind of completely off the ball at the moment at a club level, so. A lot of their key players are just not really coming to a good vein of form at the right time for them. So I think, yeah, not really much has been made for them. But the fact that you can still start with a front three of like Dries Mertens, Yannick Carrasco and Romelu Lukaku is testament to how much firepower they have um, and, and, you know, how how strong they look. I mean, um, again, Timothy Cassania comes off um, injured and, and to be able to replace him with Thomas Meunier is also, you know, just exceptional. Um, so I agree with you. I think that they also look like they, they could well finally, uh, you know, make the most of their incredible talent and golden generation and, and, and go far. It's quite funny because they have, it's not, it's not a, it's not a like for like, but they have quite a similar squad composition to England. They have like attacking depth coming out of their ears and then the defense is like sort of iffy. And then they also have like a, a like abundance of good right backs as well, as you said there, with that whole sort of Castagna Munya thing. It's quite funny how how similar they are. Very funny, yeah, and also just weird, like Thorgan Hazard playing at wing back. Very strange, right. at least for, um, for me to see. I mean, to, to be fair to the lad, he had a great game and showed his versatility. But would you not just put Mounier on the left? I don't know. Yeah, Who's to see? you would have thought. Um, Group C, um, the player I have gone to watch out for in this group is a player from the Netherlands team, and that's Valt Weghorst. Um, we were talking earlier about sort of Memphis Depay and how impressive everyone's expecting him to be and how impressive he's already been. Uh, but I want to talk about the other lad they had up front and who did score, Valt Weghorst. He is a really impressive striker. He's got 45 goals for Wolfsburg over the last two seasons. He's got really good link-up play in the final third. I think one of the things I'm most excited about him is him in relation to Memphis Depay as an attacking prospect. I think a big part of Memphis Depay's effectiveness is going to be down to the combination that they're going to strike up together up front. And Vekos is six foot six. They sort of have that almost little and large thing going on. Depay's going to be able to play the ball off him and, and run forward, or he's going to be able to whip balls into Verkost. Um, he's got a great goal in the Netherlands opening game, and he's just one of those strikers that I imagine if you're a defender, you hate to play against him because he's just like powering along. He's like four inches taller than most of you, and he's really good at finishing. Yeah, true. I mean, he's the kind of player that if you switch off at even a moment, he'll be behind you, he'll be on top of you, towering above you in the air. It's, yeah, absolutely. You would hate to... Um, play against him. He, he seems to always kind of be on the move as well, a little bit harassing defenders. So, um, yeah, really, really a nifty little player they've got there. Definitely indeed. Um, and moving into Netherlands 3-2 Ukraine, the highest scoring game of the tournament so far. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, another high scoring game where the goals 
didn't come until the second half. Things weren't, the Netherlands were doing really well, but things weren't quite clicking in the first half, and the Ukraine weren't doing that well at all in the first half. They were sort of a little bit passengers in this game, and then they came in really hard for a little period towards the back end of the game. Um, and I thought it was very interesting that it was only once Netherlands, the Netherlands had scored their second goal that Ukraine were able to get into the game, largely because I was like, some pundit somewhere has uttered my least favourite adage in football, which is that 2-0 is the most dangerous scoring football line. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, 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 I did enjoy this game, and I thought it was a great one because Andrei Yarmolenko is such a funny player. Like, do you remember when he first sort of made his way onto the global landscape? It was because he what, played... Like for Dortmund or... Before that, he played for Ukraine against England like two or three times in a relatively short period. And everyone was sort of going, oh, like this guy's actually really good. I don't think he ever scored, but he like just ran the wing for one game. And everyone was like, oh, it's crazy. And then he played more centrally. And everyone was like, oh. And everyone was sort of linking him to all these clubs in the Prem. And he ended up going to Dortmund and it didn't really work out. And then he's gone to West Ham where he's been all right, but he doesn't really start now. And then he's just come back. And he the goal he scored... The confidence and like the technique, I was like, "That's world class." Someone should sign him. And I was like, "No wait, no wait. We've been through this before, <laughs> at least twice." Yeah. <laughs> but his re- his scoring record for Ukraine: forty one goals in ninety five games for a guy who's predominantly a winger. That's insane. It's incredibly impressive. And I mean, the weird part for me was that I didn't even realize he was Ukraine's captain. Um, so you know, he's clearly got a massive presence in that dressing room, as you said, a really impressive. Um, you know, set of statistics internationally. Um, and yeah, it does feel like he kind of puts on his, his different international hat and, you know, maybe ties his, his shoelaces the other way around this time and, and I don't know, flip a coin before he takes to the pitch. Yeah, it does seem seem quite bizarre. It was just fantastic. Um, and yeah, Ukraine got back into it. They did really, really well. And then unfortunately uh, for them, the Netherlands sort of got back into it again and Denzel Dumfries scored the winner. Um I do think that the Netherlands maybe stumbled a little bit in this game and in, in sort of failing to put its bed and getting a bit complacent, but I do still think they are they are one of the most dangerous teams in this competition potentially. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, you know, Yarmolenko's goal really did just disrupt the run of play because Netherlands were looking really dominant. Genie Wijnaldum was was running the midfield um quite comfortably, I would say, and then suddenly out of the blue um comes his goal and then they get back into it with a quick second um, so yeah, I agree that obviously you kind of have to look at it as a bit of a flaw to have let them back into the game. But I also think that you know the way the momentum of the match turned on its head, uh, that goal out of the blue point. You know, I, I don't fault them too much for it. Yeah, I think that's a fair analysis. Um, wrapping us off for the first half of the groups with Austria versus North Macedonia, uh, which was a 3-1 game. And there are two main reasons I want to talk about this game. Firstly, all of the goals were so entertaining and for like different reasons. And I thought that was so funny for a game that was between a side that have never won at the Euros and a side that had never been to the Euros. No, I, I know. And obviously it was a, it was a great game to watch. And the passion of the the North Macedonia fans and players was great to see, um, and really nice to see Austria do well. They're, they're definitely a side who have individual players that I really like. Um, but as I'm sure the next thing we're going to get into, which is going to be the Anatovic, um incident, a shame that it was marred by such a strange moment. Yeah, it was, it was really weird because like, all of the goals that Austria scored were great. Macedonia's was just great comedy, but all of theirs were great. And Arnautovic sort of came on 
scored the goal that was basically confirmed to put the game to bed because it took him from 2-1 to 3-1. And I was thinking, oh, he's going to be absolutely buzzing here. And he was just furious. And he was visibly extremely angry. And then loads of his teammates were, like, running over to him to cut. Like, one of them was sort of, like, almost strangling him to calm him down. And then Alaba was, like, grabbing his face. And I was like, what's happening here? And then he came out today, (laughs) after all that angry outburst, and he said... I am not a racist. There were some heated words yesterday in the emotions of the game for which I would like to apologise, especially to my friends from North Macedonia and Albania. Which is like a statement of two halves. He said that first bit and then he said something that would infer that that first bit isn't untrue. Yeah, I mean, it's any any time, you, any sentence that you start with, I'm not a racist. Like you're in, you're already in like some real dangerous territory. Um, but and- he's not. He's not even gone for the Andre Kudela. Like I'm not a racist. I didn't say that. He's like I'm not a racist. And then he's like, but I did say something that I would want to apologise to these specific groups of people for. And I was like, isn't that? I I mean I think his his bizarre argument seems to be that what he said in the heat of the moment does not reflect his values. But at that point, like you have to admit that even if you don't think of yourself as racist. Your behaviour was at least racist. I'm just so, like, bro, what a, what a weird statement. But yeah, uh, other than that, super bizarre. And I guess, like, yeah, apparently he's a Serbian father and doesn't, you know, recognise North Macedonia. And uh, thank God they didn't play not, Kosovo. Not really what you want to see in this national tournament. Unlike Austria's first goal, which I, I feel like was they were really unlucky that. Um, uh, Czech Republic scored the goal that they did, Patrick Shit, because otherwise Stefan Liner, I thought that was gonna that was like lined up to be the goal of the tournament. It was the kind of goal that reminds me of um Zlatan Ibrahimovic, you know, like the acrobatic leap and then he sort of knocks it in across the keeper. I thought it was great. It was pretty spectacular, wasn't it? I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Loved it, loved these goals, and I hope that both these teams continue to to score goals like this. Um shall we move into Usus Trivia before we go into Group D and England, England? Yes, please, let's do it. After you. Uh, so my uses trivia this week is about one of the teams that we're about to talk about. Uh, this is a uses trivia fact called McScotland. And that is that at their first ever Euros game in 1992, Scotland started with seven mooks. With McKimmy, McPherson, McAllister, McCall, McStay, McClare and McCoist. Now, unfortunately, they're down to just two in the starting eleven: McTominay and McGinn. Just those two? Wow. You hate to see them go, don't you? I know. (laughs) As a McDonald, I feel like my culture's being destroyed. (laughs) It is a sad day in the Scotland camp. (laughs) What have you got for us? That is a good one. So um, I have a um, a, a funny little moment um, about Cristiano Ronaldo, who set a new record in his appearance today against Hungary by becoming the first ever player to play in five different Euros from 2004 all the way to 2020 brackets asterisk 2021 um he made headlines off the pitch this week by removing some coke bottles off the press conference table before his interview acting visibly annoyed they were there in the first place and saying that water is more important this coke sponsorship of of the euros comes a long line of bizarre from my perspective relationships between things like major sports events and um, their sponsorships, which saw, you know, I guess like McDonald's sponsored the Olympics for over 50 years. Um, But what gets weirder is that um, dig a little deeper and you realize that Cristiano Ronaldo is sponsored by Pepsi. So he can't really argue that, oh, I, I really just don't believe in this brand. I think we should be drinking water instead. Um, so that has been something that I saw appear in just one article and no one else is really talking about it. But then 
you get one stage even deeper, which no one is making the connection for between at the moment, which is that in 2012, Cristiano Ronaldo was actually sponsored by Coca-Cola and he lost his $750,000 sponsorship because he was seen entering a press conference sipping a Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ, how deep does this rabbit hole go? You know, I, I, I saw, because um, I saw obviously this this clip of him removing the Coca-Cola bottles and one of the pictures that someone had, it was on Twitter, had responded with underneath, it was a picture of Ronaldo in a Coca-Cola advert and it was sort of like a hypocrite thing. Didn't know the Pepsi connection. What I have also read today, quite interestingly, is that since Ronaldo did that, there's been a $4 billion drop in the share price of Coca-Cola. <laughs> $4 billion. Yeah, it lost um it lost a penny per share, I think, was the um the impact of it. To be fair, I personally take away whatever the Pepsi crap is going on in the background. I am really here for that happening because I hate this like alignment of these just really bad health brands trying to pretend that they are in some way, you know, good for you by associating themselves with these kind of competitions. So A, yes, this is great down with coke sponsoring things like the euros it shouldn't happen it shouldn't be allowed to happen fundamentally disagree with it and b there's some, there's some sketchy shit going on in the background man the, the funny thing with that spot because i do agree the sponsor thing's quite funny in, in terms of yeah like the mcdonald mcdonald's in the olympics or cadbury's another one or even i suppose you could say with like beers and stuff like when budweiser uh, or heineken sponsor something um it, it is always quite weird and you kind of like wonder like where the line is like surely they could never be like ah oh, the Marlborough Premier League. Well, you say that. I mean, I guess maybe not cigarettes because they have had some um, pretty hefty a, sanctions a slapped on them for what they can and can't advertise for. I mean, I don't think you can legally advertise for cigarettes on the TV anymore or something like that, um, or, or in magazines. I, I'm not sure exactly what the rulings are, but but they do have things that they can't do. Yeah, I, I personally think that. I don't. Maybe shouldn't be a rule, but I feel like the Euros should be maybe a little bit disappointed themselves for allowing allowing themselves to be sponsored by that and not, I don't know, Lucasaid. Just take Lucasaid. Uh, be be happy with like I don't know. I look forward think? to the, the 2024 Euros press conference when Cristiano Ronaldo is like removing a pack of Lambert and Butlers off this press conference table, and he's like, "Hey guys, vape instead." <laughs> and we find out that he's sponsored by Jewel. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Uh, the the dystopian future scape continues. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm worried at how you know visual that that imagery is. I can very readily imagine it. Looking at Group D before we go into the games, who have you selected as the player to watch out for in this group? So, I think um, again, just because of, of how the um, I guess the the results panned out so far, um, I felt like the team to watch in this group. Is Czech Republic just because you know England have beaten Croatia? We know England's side relatively well. Um, we kind of said to ourselves we weren't going to pick anyone from the Premier League for this, and I, I can't in good conscience pick out Jaden Sancho who didn't even play a minute, <laughs> um, against Croatia. So, um, looking at Czech Republic, and, and I guess there are a couple of players who really stood out, um, but the main one. It has got to be Patrick Schick just because of the impact that he had on last game. And and the thing I want to highlight about him is how well the Czech Republic look like they are setting up to support his strengths, which is that he, he's a decently clinical striker who's good in the air. 
Um, and, you know, he's really going to profit from having the likes of Kufal at right back, who looked really dominant up and down that right hand side and um, put in the cross. He got the assist for the first goal, didn't he? assist for his goal, yeah, exactly. Um, and the other player who's going to be key for Czech Republic as they move forward is their um, attacking midfielder, Dorida. Um, he's oh, yeah, Vladimir Dorida. Yeah, he averaged an assist every four games of the Bundesliga last season. Very much has an eye for a through ball. Um, and yeah, it's just going to be um, a really exciting team as they try and funnel you know, Patrick Schick to, to get as many chances as possible. He's already had the most shots on target of any player so far in, in the tournament. And if if Czech Republic is going to try and upset the likes of Croatia or England and make it out the group stages, because it maybe does look like Scotland might not do it. Um, I, I do think that yeah, it's really gonna it's gonna be looking at how Czech Republic can can unlock him in the best way possible because he's a good player, yes, but he's definitely not without his flaws. He he can go offside pretty easily. Um, he he he's pretty physical. He's quick. He's strong, but um, he's not necessarily the most tactically aware. So how Czech Republic kind of shapes their tactics around him is going to be fun to watch. Yeah, I agree. And when we talk about Scotland versus Czech Republic, um, I think Czech Republic maybe making it out of the groups is a really interesting prospect. Um, but before we do, looking at England versus Croatia, a 1-0 win. Uh, fantastic. It's officially coming home. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, it was just a great game. And it was one of those that was interesting because when the lineup came out, I think pretty much everyone in the country was like, this doesn't make sense. We've just thrown the game away. But to be completely fair to Gareth Southgate, it was specifically the players that people sort of expected to disappoint that won England the game. Raheem Sterling got the goal, and although he sort of had a couple of Raheem Sterling-esque fluffs in front of goal as well, throughout the game he was generally quite good at being a nuisance to Croatia's bat line. Calvin Phillips dropped a man-of-the-match performance, absolutely brilliant, and he was one of those that everyone was going, oh, do you need Phillips' hand rise? Oh, should Phillips be... The entire nation's mood has turned around on Calvin Phillips, you can tell that easily now. And Tyrone Mings is the other one that everyone was sort of had a little bit of a question mark over him, going, oh, he's got a mistake in him, and he had a really good game too as well, obviously... The defence didn't have to do as much as you might have expected, but he was doing really well in getting the ball out from those back areas um, and was really impressive. And then conversely, it was the players that you would have expected to sort of be more of a safe bet, like Harry Kane, that took more of a back seat in this game. Yeah, true. I mean, Harry Kane was, was almost nowhere um, throughout and yeah, it does worry me. Um, I, I guess the the main thing when I looked at the lineup was just that it didn't feel like an ambitious side. And that might be, I don't know, scathing for the players that were picked. But I just felt like we'd set up in a way that was potentially quite safe in, in that we'd gone for a four at the back like we had played in the last couple of friendlies, which doesn't really suit the squad that we have. Um, you know, aging fullbacks, Kyle Walker and Kieran Trippier over, you know, all of the exciting talent that we have at left and right back. Um the, the two two just pure defensive midfielders in Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips. It looked on paper like that was going to be the case, but obviously, you know, Calvin Phillips got really far forward and, and was one of the yeah. most, most progressive players. Um, so I was definitely proved wrong in my assumptions um, when looking at the lineup. But yeah, I agree with you. I think um, it is coming home. I'm not disputing that. Confirmed. Croatia did not look very good. They weren't an exciting side to watch. They look old. They look like they didn't have any ideas. Uh, we won 1-0, which is a good result. But I I still don't think that we've seen anywhere near kind of the exciting potential that we had, at least before the tournament. 
I think that's really good, though, because I think there's two ways to look at that. Because f- for me, the fact that you had all the sort of people who they, you thought would do badly do well, and all the people who you thought would do well do not badly, but do sort of less of less of a sort of impact on that game, I thought was good for a number of reasons. For the first, I thought just good to see big performances from those players. The other second thing is that it really stokes up some belief in Southgate. Obviously, we have a huge history in this country of everyone jumping down the managers and the players' throats and that having an effect. And also, the third thing is it means we have loads more in the back pocket. If this was a game that Harry Kane wasn't at his best and we still won, that means that's still something we can activate. Obviously, players like Grealish and Sancho or either of the left-backs didn't even come on. They they didn't play and Jude Bellingham only had a short cameo. So that, to me, is really encouraging because it sort of goes, right, well, we've beaten Croatia, which is on paper the hardest match in the groups without the use of any of those players or without any of those players playing at their best that means we still have something to come out let's say we now play against Czech Republic in the third game and they've also whipped out a you know a win against Croatia and are actually shaping up to be a bit of a dark horse we can then go right okay well here's what you're not expecting Jack Grealish on you go so so I was really really positive about it my question to you would be with regards to that and indeed with regards to 11 do you now change the 11 that beat Croatia or do you stick to something that's a bit more familiar? Because for me, I would never have had Calvin Phillips and Declan Rice in the same eleven. But we've now seen that it works really well. Calvin Phillips had a great, great game playing in that in that further forward role. So do you stick with that, or do you sort of revert to conventional wisdom, which is you only need the one defensive mid? I have no problem now um, with Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips starting in in midfield together. I think that's absolutely fine in my books. Um, I think that. I guess, you know, we're going to have different challenges that we're going to face during the tournament. And at that point, I wouldn't mind seeing someone like Jordan Henderson come in. I wouldn't mind having someone like Jude Bellingham um, with his, you know, a bit more dynamic play come through as well. So I, I I just think it's it's nice that we this is another, yet another option um, as, as a string to our bow that we can play with. I think um, the one thing that, in the same way that you're saying how you had, like, just a bit of a groan when, um, you know... Netherlands went 2-0 up and, and the commentator said, oh, well, 2-0 uh, is the most dangerous scoreline. And then it happened that they came back to, to level it 2-2. Raheem Sterling scoring the winner just made me really annoyed because <laughs> he didn't have a good game and Jack Grealish should have been playing over him. And I worry that now he has cemented his, his place in this starting lineup. I, yeah, I think that's a reasonable concern, but it can go both ways, can't it? He, it was his first goal at a tournament, so he could take that confidence and now have a really, really good performance. Um, you know, for the rest of his well competition. Taken shot, he hit it straight. No, it wasn't at all. We got, we got so lucky. Um, <laughs> we, I mean, yeah, in, in some ways we did, in other ways we didn't. You know, I mean, I, I was fortunately lucky enough to be there. I was just behind the goal when that Phil Foden post hit the that Phil Foden shot hit the post, and had it been you know an inch or two further inside, that would have gone in. Everyone in the stadium was off the ground by the way at that point when the ball was, which was uh, which was fantastic. But I, yeah, I thought you know on the one hand the finish was lucky. I did also think that there were a few other things. Obviously, there was that Foden chance. I did think that not to be you know, get greedy about the win. I think we could have scored more goals if we had had a dedicated set-piece specialist um, taking the, the the free kicks. I know that's why Kieran Trippi was brought in as a left-back instead of either one of Luke Shaw or Ben Chilwell. But I just thought, especially if you have ones that are more central or on the right, which are less favourable to, to Trippier, um, on, on the left, sorry, that are less favourable to Trippier, I, I did just think it would have been nice to have, like, for example, a James or Prowse in, involved or someone that could just could just get the benefit of that. Because it, was it Mason Mount who took one quite late in the day? And it was, an, or it was a decent free kick, but it was like, that was a really good chance to score. And we won the game anyway, so it doesn't matter. 
um, unless things do come down to goal difference, which they probably won't, but may. Um, yeah, I just thought maybe that that was the one part of our game that's missing, especially because you look at the squad that we have, and it's another thing. It's like between Raheem Sterling, Phil Foden, Jack Grealish, Bakayo Saka, if he gets any games, these are all players that get very frequently fouled in dangerous areas. And I think that, with the combination of a player that can bang in free kicks consistently, would just be deadly. Yeah, you, you would definitely think so. And I always would be happy to, like, if it had James Will Prowse in the squad and then bring him on for a, a you know, if a a free kick if there's in the last kind of five, ten minutes and we need a goal. I agree with you. I think Mason Mount seems like a decent corner t- taker, but he's not going to guarantee you goals um, from, say, like five set pieces um, from the edge of the box. Caleb Trippier is, is a decent finisher. He's probably, he's definitely our best free kick taker in the squad, I would say, um, mm. because everyone else is kind of, if Reese James can hit one quite well, but there's no no nowhere near the kind of level of consistency. Marcus Rast is another example um, of someone like James Prowse. So yeah, so it's disappointing that I guess none of these players can can hit a good consistent free kick. But I there's nothing we can do about know, it now. Beggars can't be choosers. Like we've got a great <laughs> squad. We've got a really balanced squad. Um, I agree with you that it would be a nice tactical touch, but I, I'm not unhappy too much about it. No, I mean, it, was, it was a good win as well. And it's interesting you said that Croatia looked bad because obviously the, the two sides of the story, obviously we're English and, you know, on the day you're sort of going, oh yeah, come on England, we're the best team in the world and we've just beaten Croatia who were in a World Cup final. So that means we're going to win the World Cup. But actually, this was not the Croatia that played at the World Cup. Um, they did look a lot more tired, a lot older. I was sat there in the sun at the time that happened. It was such a hot day, and I was wondering if that was maybe part of it, sort of just like the sun beating down on their backs and them sort of just being a bit sluggish, and for whatever reason, it was affecting us less. Um, but yeah, they just didn't look anywhere near the level any of us were expecting. And it was one of those things that, in the moment at the game, because it was only ever a one-goal margin, I was sort of sat on the edge of my seat because I was like, well, this is Croatia, like... It's 1-0, but they could turn on at any moment. And they just never really did. No, they didn't. And I think... Um, I'm not quite sure really what was going on, but Brozovic didn't look like he was up to it. Luka Modric, an amazing player, was just, just very old at this point. Um, Kovacic did not have anywhere near the sort of like dynamism that he's had this season for Chelsea. Perisic, off the boil. Andrzej Rebic looked like he was like, I don't know, fighting against nothing. Um, and and Kramaric, who I really like as a player, he's really talented. He's he's really interesting, um, you know, unconventional forward. Um, again, just look pretty dull. Um, and then they don't have a very good defense apart from maybe Vrasalco. So yeah, I think um, if they were going to win anything, it would have been, I guess, two years ago. Yeah, it, it just was very weird. And it does make me think, because looking at this next game, Scotland 2 not Czech Republic, if Croatia play like they played against us and Czech Republic play like they played against Scotland, I could see Czech Republic winning. Um, but looking at the Scotland game, uh, I think it is interesting because obviously before any of the matches started, these two teams were both looking at this game as their most likely win, with the other two teams being us and Croatia. Um, and potentially something to springboard off. A lot of people were commenting prior to our game against Croatia that if England lost to Croatia and Scotland beat the Czech Republic, it would line up perfectly for Scotland to knock out their long-standing enemies from the competition, which is like, you can just imagine that being an incentive that like really spurred them on and just like an anxiety thing that just really held England back. Yeah, um, yeah so. absolutely glad that didn't happen but um you know Scotland were good in this game they had the majority of chances but 
the lack of a top quality finisher just really hurt them. And that's another theme that we'll see a lot with a lot of these teams. And part of the reason why I think, you know, Spain are one of my choices, are both choice really to go out in the groups, just the lack of a top quality finisher. Um, Lyndon Dykes just did not have a great game. Um, the Czech keeper, Thomas Vaklik, had a really good game, but I also feel like he would have been very grateful how many shots were shot directly at him. Um, and I just thought the difference was Scotland had more chances, but no one who could take them well. Austri- uh, Czech Republic had less chances, but Patrick Schick had a really, really good game. He took his header extremely well. And then obviously that second goal is the goal of the tournament, probably <laughs> curling it in from halfway. Yeah, an uh, unbelievable um, shot. I, mean, I, I still am uh, baffled by it. Just to take that on at an international level is just unreal. Um, in the first so- game as well. Yeah, you've got to give him some mad props for that one. Because um, yeah, like, that, that goes like... wrong. I mean, he had scored early, but if that goes wrong, the manager's going to be giving you the hairdryer treatment. You might get dropped for game two, especially if it comes back to like 1-1, because you've given away possession. Yeah, true. I mean, it's, it's in no way a smart move, but he backs no, himself. No, I, I admire it. I it, admire it the, the unbe- balls. It was unbelievably like talented. The, it's, the it's, way it's it like curled a... in was so, so good. It's like um, Czech Republic's other really notable Euros goal, isn't it? Or like it's any pe- any Penenka penalty you ever see. If a player pulls it off, you go you go like, oh, ice cold. But when it goes wrong, you're just like, well, you're a dick, aren't you? You done messed up now. Yeah, true. I, so Scotland, I really want Scotland to do well. I like this side, but I, I just feel like they were missing one more good player. And I feel like to not have someone like Kieran Turney in the lineup because of injury really just did a lot of damage to them. And I, I, there were moments where I just thought they need that little bit of dynamism from the wing and, and he just wasn't there. Um, and I think that, as you said, this was kind of their best chance of getting points. And, you know, they, they had their opportunities. They had a, a decent amount of possession, but they couldn't quite convert it. I mean, Czech Republic defended really well. They hit a low block um, solidly and, and they were strong. Um out wide as well. They've got two pretty solid um, wing backs in, in Jan Borrell and, and Vladimir Kufal. But yeah, I think um, I was I was a little disappointed just to to see John McGinn and Scott McTominay not perform as well as we know they can do. Yeah, it was one of those weird things where it was like Scott McTominay. I mean, I have mixed feelings about him, but you know, for better or for worse, he starts for Manchester United, and he looked out of his depth playing for Scotland. Which is no disrespect to either McTominay nor Scotland, but that that's a weird sentence, right? You would think so, yeah. I mean, it's not... But again, I guess, you know, Czech Republic do have a pretty solid midfield. They've got Thomas Suchek, who, um, you know, we're, we're fans of on the podcast. Um, Vladimir Dorida, again, who's really creative as a player. Um, and Ice Crowell, who, who was pretty solid in terms of, like, balancing the side for quite a young player who's only 23 and, and relatively inexperienced. Um, before he came off. So, yeah, credit to Czech Republic. And it looks like Scotland might not win a game this year, which is sad. I mean, they've never progressed past the group stages in any um, Euros or World Cup in their history. Yeah, it doesn't look like... I mean, if you, when, if you speak to most Scotland fans, like they've looked at this game as sort of the only route they had of getting out was winning this game and then using the momentum to beat England. And like, pretty much all Scotland fans are like, yeah, we're out. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, I um, I mean, I don't know how representative this is of just, I guess, like mindset, but I was talking to a Scottish friend of mine and he was saying like, I might not be able to watch the England game due to like work and I'm not that upset about it. <laughs> 
Yeah, because you're worried it might be like a, a bashing. Well, I mean, I suppose it's it's got to be a tough one when the when the opening game goes that poorly. Um, looking at Group E, the player that I've got to watch out for in Group E is actually a player from a team that lost their first game, and that is Poland's Piotr Zielinski. Um, Poland did lose their first game of the tournament and didn't look very exciting in the first half. But for those who haven't seen it yet, um, you know, because you might not have watched Poland Slovakia on a Monday, um, I really encourage you to look out there, look at their goal. It's a really nice move. It's got several quick, clever passes. It's one of those things. That if like Spain had scored it, people would have been going, "Oh, and that's the Spanish style." It was actually really nice. And I think Poland lost this game, not because they played particularly badly, but because of individual errors from two players, Szczesny for the own goal, and Grigor Kaczałek for getting sent off. I actually think they looked really impressive for spells of this game, although so did Slovakia. Um, and this is sort of tying into sort of, I think that both these teams could potentially finish above Spain. I think when people think about Poland's threats, it's all about Robert Lewandowski, and with good reason. But you've also got to consider who's providing him the service and who's going to be getting him those chances. And Napoli, uh, Napoli's Piotr Zielinski is the main man pulling the strings for Poland in the final third. He operates in the area behind the striker, connects the midfield to the attack. He drifts wide. He was sort of on the left-hand side of the, of the field for that first goal, knocking him in together. But he can also cross really well. He was third for assists in Serie A this season and one of the standout performers for Napoli. Um, so I, I think... If Poland are going to turn it around and get something out of this this competition, I think he's going to be, again, one of the big reasons why and one of the big players making a difference. Um, their next game is against Spain, which is a colossal game because the loser of that game is probably out of the tournament. And, you know, you heard it here first, Zielinski to Lewandowski to win 1-0. Ooh, that is a hot take. See, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my hot take uh, to, to be what I think is going to happen, which is Lewandowski makes a uh, a really good dummy run to allow Zielinski the space to head home um, for the winner. <laughs> Either or, um, okay, true. Yeah, I mean he he's uh, he's been on on a lot of people's radars for a long time. Zielinski, um, he's twenty seven now, and and he's had you know he's been linked to the Premier League for a long time, and he just does have it all. He's a really strong, combative number eight that um, you know is great at passing. He's he's just um, yeah. A What's interesting player, is he normally plays. He, he normally plays, as you said there, in the eight. Sometimes as a ten, but Poland have been playing him a lot either on the left side of attack or on the left side of uh, a, a midfield four, which has been really interesting to sort of see how how he adapts that and, and you know did do that well in this game. Yeah, well, I mean, it kind of makes sense just because like his his goal scoring threat has always been better than his his defensive attributes um, for for people that are fans of the Serie A. So. I guess I understand why you would do that. He doesn't really strike me as a traditional winger, but it makes sense for him to be in that final third as much as possible for a, for a team that is going to need to score goals um, because their defense is solid, if uninspiring. Yeah, there's a couple of there's a couple of the established names there, but it, yeah, it's it's not something you're thinking like they're going to put in a, a legendary display. Um, it was a little bit disappointing for them this game because they looked like they were going to fight back to a winning position until Kuchoyuk was sent off. Um, but I think Slovakia played really well. I think they played with a really high level of intensity, particularly down the wings. They were offering threats throughout the first half. I was sort of just like, I did not expect this from them at all. It's kind of interesting because a lot like Group D, where the Czech Republic are the top of the group, this is the team that sort of conventional wisdom is that they're the worst team in the group and yet they're at the top of it, um, which obviously it's only the first game, but you only play three games. This is true. Anything can happen. Um, so yeah, there's a real magic of the cup element to that, isn't there? It's kind of like anything can happen over 90, 180, 270 minutes. Um, but uh, it's going to be a fun group to watch as well, just because we're now uh, committed to um, 
I guess like hoping that Spain don't progress. <laughs> um, but, Sorry uh, to any listeners who live in Spain, by the way. You've just been getting raw dogged for the last hour. Yeah, it's been a tough one. Um, yeah, Spain Spain had a tough role this week. Um, didn't look very hot. Sweden defended well, and they just didn't really have a lot of lot of you know ways to to try and break them down. And what worries me is that in the same way that you know whenever you see like a team go on a good run and they get halted in the Premier League, for example, all other all other teams just really carefully analyze that game and go, all right, well where. Where were they unable to get broken down kind of thing? And I can really see just Poland and Slovakia going, well, this is what Sweden did, so we're just going to do the same. And I really don't know how Spain beat that, unless they maybe have learned their lesson and they do start someone like Moreno, which makes it a different outlook up front. The, pro- the problem with Spain at the moment, though, is that in this game, and I, I agree with you, a lot of other teams in the group will be looking at this and going, okay, so this is what we need to do. With Spain at the moment, because of the guy they've got up front, Alvaro Manasa, you don't even need to stop them creating chances. You just need to limit the quality of those chances. Because some strikers, they get the ball anywhere and within 20, 25 yards, there's a chance for it to be a goal. Alvaro Morata, he's got like that, that, well, he's like the OG Timo Werner in a way. It's sort of like anything short of an open goal, you just don't trust him to do it. And I think that makes your life a lot easier if you're a defensive side, because you don't have to completely keep them out. You just have to make sure he doesn't get into a favourable angle. Um, I thought Sweden were pretty impressive, impressive defensively, but as we mentioned earlier, the real star was Alexander Isaac. He was almost my player to watch, but he did win a Young Player of the Year in the Liga. So I thought, is that you know enough of a enough of an obscure like, one? Does, does that count? Yeah, yeah for does sure. that count? But but he was absolutely fantastic. Twenty one years old, just looks like he could go on to do great things. Um, and he scored, I think, seventeen goals in the Liga this season. Came into this game, looked really good. Even though Sweden didn't score, he had an effort cleared off the line. He was a real nuisance the whole game. So he's another one that I could see Sweden um, potentially going further than people think in this tournament because they've got a solid basis to build on and then a little bit of excitement up front. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's um, a pretty pretty comprehensive review and a very talented, exciting player. I mean, 17 goals at his age is, is so, so impressive uh, in the in the top flight of Spain. But um, yeah, it's interesting that you uh, didn't feel like you could pick him for your player to watch because we move into Group F, which is the group of death and uh, one littered with players that we know all too well about. <laughs> yeah, so I suppose you've got there. Who, who have you picked that is not from Hungary that no one really knows about? Uh, I mean, kind of like uh, pick a name, really. It, it's tricky. I, I could have picked someone from Hungary, I think. Um, actually while we've been talking Portugal have, have just won 3-0 against Hungary and interestingly um, all three goals came in the last like six minutes um, which again you know a trend that we picked up on earlier um, floodgates open, I, yeah. I just did don't feel like Hungary have enough about them to make it out the group so I've, I've looked at the other three teams I could have gone for Rafael Guerrero that was one player that, that I thought may not be as much on, on English football fans' radars. But um, I think that the main player I'm going to pick is um, from the Germany side, just because I think he's going to be really key to, again, you know whether or not they do well. Um, it's someone that we talked about on the podcast a little bit before for the Champions League. Um, it's um, Kevin Volland. 
Yep, makes sense. I mean, that's a good a place as any, really, because unlike the other groups, um, these matches haven't all been played yet. So just looking sort of at who's going to come out on top in this, let's let's start with Germany, because you talked about Kevin Volland. Uh, I think that it's definitely true he's going to be really important. Their squad only has two listed forwards, one of them being Kevin Volland and the other being Timo Werner. Good, <laughs> um, good man, Timo Werner. And yeah, he's, he's coming off the back of a really prolific... Um season in Liga for Monaco he's got 16 goals and crucially as well seven assists Germany is a side that I think Thomas Müller came out I'm sure you saw it and said um, you know we don't have any players that have won um, Ballon d'Ors but we've got three um, World Cups so you know four this, even this, four sorry four World Cups this sense of you know the, the collective team being stronger than the sum of its parts is, is crucial to Germany's just whole ideology and someone like Kevin Volland who is a really solid team player um, is going to be key and, and as you said like they're going to have to rely on him because they don't have many forwards and definitely don't have many forwards that will be uh, consistently banging the goals in up top um, I mean he's 28 he's coming into the prime years of his life I think he fits in really well with Germany's um, the outfit Germany's dynamic I think he's going to really benefit from having the likes of Thomas Muller playing off him um, and I just think that he's really going to be the focal point up front for, for what could be a little bit of a surprise package again because not much is being made of Germany's chances really that I would say that I've seen um, at least uh, until the start of the tournament. Yeah, I would, I would agree and I think you know, the striker thing is interesting because they have, I think, played Muller a few games there in the previous friendlies and Serge Gnabry as well, but neither of them are sort of a, an actual proper striker, which you, you normally need to do well in these tournaments. Um, but I think, yeah, Germany is interesting because Germany seemed to have been quite a popular choice for a team to go out in the groups, sort of like a, a rogue shout. Um, and I think a big part of that is because the last major tournament they were in, the 2018 World Cup, they got knocked out in the groups then. They've lost loads of their key players that brought them success in the 2014 World Cup, from Lahm to Schweinsteiger to Ozil, Kadira, and etc. Et There's so many of them. Um, and it is, again, hard to look past the fact that you know Timo Werner is on the fringes of that side. If he gets started, he's not going to be a great, a great asset. But I just think that people are writing off Germany too easily. Like People keep saying, like, oh, that golden generation of players is gone. And it is. But the squad is still stacked with talents. Like, if you look at how many players in that team are, are Bayern Munich players, Muller, Nabry, Kimmich, Manuel Neuer, all amongst the best players on the continent, Bayern Munich are still an elite European side. So I, I agree that Germany might not be as strong as they were back in the day. And obviously, it is a very, very tough group. But yeah, I, I think people are writing them off quite easily. And we'll have to see how they play this evening. But but yeah, it, it seems weird to me that people are so ready to dismiss them. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think... Um... They, they probably will have quite a good tournament. I think that's maybe just a, a general sense, and, and I could well be wrong. I'm sure I will be. Um, but I think um, Kevin Volland, as you mentioned, Thomas Miller has has started up front quite a lot for them, and I, and I do think that, that that could well be their default, at least to start with. But I think that as a player to watch out for, someone that can really have an impact off the bench, someone that they could come to you know, incorporate a lot more as the tournament progresses, he'll be a fun one to watch out for. Definitely. Um, looking at one of the next teams in the group, France, the current world champions. Um, surely by that metric, they'd be favourites of the tournament. They've got a slightly... The one thing that I think France have got going against them is that when you look at their squad, a lot of the players 
have had slightly disappointing domestic seasons. They've obviously got a, a large France uh, PSG representation. They've got Karen Benzema who played at Real Madrid. They've got um, players who have played at um, uh, Barcelona as well and Griezmann. And a lot of these players are of Titi. A lot of these players have sort of had a bit of a dom- disappointing domestic season. Um, but on paper, the squad is still really stacked. And this is basically the, wor- the squad that won the World Cup with the addition of an informed Karen Benzema. So... In theory, that's only going to improve them. Golo Kante's come back fit for the end of the season and reminded everyone in the world that <laughs> often Kante's involvement alone in the side is enough to turn them from silverware hopefuls into tournament favourites. Um, so there's a lot to, to like about France, obviously. Um, but the one thing, and this is very sort of Didier Deschamps' France squad, is that there have been rumours of discord within the squad. Apparently there's been a feud between Olivier Giroud and Kylian Mbappe brewing after the last friendly game. Some have said this is being blown out of proportion. Some have said this might derail France, which would be so France at a, at a big tournament uh, for that to happen. But yeah, h- how do you feel about France in this? I think that's really going to be the only way in which they can slip up. I think... Um... The main thing is, like, I just think that 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 midfield duo of of Kante, as you mentioned, being so impactful, and and just his his relationship with Paul Pogba, there's so much love there. <laughs> I, th- I thought for a second that you weren't going to mention a second player. The midfield duo was just Kante. <laughs> Don't tempt me. Um, <laughs> that midfield duo yeah, of Kante. <laughs> to be fair, um, he he does have the uh, the presence of at least two players, as has been said many times. Um, but yeah, just the way that he allows um, Paul Pogba to, to really try and dominate the, the midfield is is so crucial to France's success that, yes, obviously Giroud having a, a tiff with Kylian Mbappe is going to be damaging to them. But the fact that they have Benzema instead to start, hopefully it's not going to impact them too much. But yeah, it, it's something that it's just sad to see because we've seen it all, all too many times. Um, I remember when I was first starting to get into football, um, I can't remember if it was... You might know better than me. Was it the two thousand four, two thousand six tournament, where um, a bunch of French players just refused to to join up with the squad? Uh, I don't. Surely that wasn't two thousand six because they were in the they were in the final. So know, presumably two thousand four. People like Anelka and um, I, I can't remember. Um, but yeah, it's it's, it's um, been a it's been a thing that's happened to the French the France football team plenty of times in the past always stacked with talent but also like a lot of uh, a lot of grumpy superstars and a lot of people have sort of looked at this Mbappe thing and sort of worried that maybe Neymar's had a bit of an influence well perhaps um, I mean yeah he, we, we shall see but I, I still think um, France uh, you've got to you got to still think of them as favourites they just have such a such a strong um, and well balanced unit not just you know, the starting eleven, but also who they have to, to back them up. Even players like Corentin Tolito, um, Musa Sissoko, um, Kingsley Coman doesn't even make the starting lineup, and he's one of the most exciting players in the whole tournament. Um, yeah. So, uh, Wissam Ben Yedder as well, who's, who's had another great season. So, uh, yeah, they're just... They've got, really, yeah, quality they're going to be a great team to watch. Um, the other team that have sort of France are the, the current world champions, but the current European champions are, of course, Portugal. Uh, and to add insult to injury, they beat France in the 2016 Euros final. Um, and you looked at that Portugal side at the time, and it was such a bizarre... It was sort of like Ronaldo and friends. And it was Eder who scored the winner, and it was one of those really bizarre things. They finished third in their group, and it was the first year that rule had changed to allow people to go through. So they really seemed like... Just like a, a, a bizarre team to have won it. 
since that tournament, the team has got way better. Um, you know, now they have players like Ruben Diaz, Bruno Fernandes, Diogo Jota, Bernardo Silva, Raf Guerrero, as you mentioned. It's a mouth-watering sort of quote-unquote supporting cast for Ronaldo. Loads of these players are top, top, top talents. And then you've got a really exciting prospects with a point to prove, like Renato Sanchez, who's had a bit of a new lease of life this season over in Ligue 1, or Hal Felix, who is sort of trying to get back into the hype that was surrounding him before he moved to Atletico Madrid. So, yeah, it's one of those squads, again, that on paper is just exceptional. Um, at, we started recording before they kicked off, but as you said there, they kicked it off with a 3-0 win against Hungary. Um, so, yeah, they're another team that's hard to look past. Definitely. I mean... Um... They're actually a team that I have placed a, a cheeky bet on before the, the tournament starts just because I thought that their odds were not as good as their chances to win because they yeah they, they just have a great, great squad. And the main thing is for all of their, as you mentioned, kind of incredible attacking players, they've got some great holding midfielders as well. They've got, you know, William Carvalho, Ruben Neves, um, Danilo Pereira, Joao Moutinho. Uh, as you said, I... Is Renato Sanchez a defensive midfielder? He's more of an attacking midfielder, but they they just got a real strong balance. Um, so. Loads of great players, and and yeah, the great great midfielders, great forward players, the best centre back in Diaz Europe this season. In, in, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so they're going to be a tough tough outfit to to beat for sure. I think if if France are favourites, then Portugal are probably second favourites, and it's weird that they're in the same group, but they can both get through, obviously. Um, all th- three teams can get through from this group, um, and you wouldn't be necessarily completely surprised. Looking at the last team in the group, who I, I I really want to have like a hot take about Hungary and be like, oh, like they have loads of solid performers, and Peter Kudaski and Willy Orban both play for Rebel Leipzig, and that's going to be a good sort of axis of chemistry, but Hungary. I mean, number one, they're in this group, the hardest group in the tournament. Number two, their best player, Dominic Schobelai, is missing out on this tournament. I just feel like they've been dealt the toughest hand possible. Yeah, they uh, they are going to have a rough time of it. It's just not going to be, you know, fun at all. What we can really say about them, other than the fact that, you know, they're really going to have to turn up and, and maybe it's going to be quite a refreshing thing, which is that they can probably say, like, we have no expectations to even win a game, so let's just go for it with everything we have. They could be, in a way, maybe quite a refreshing side in the way that I always feel like goalkeepers have like maybe a little bit of enthusiasm to try and save a penalty because they can't lose if they don't save it. It's not really their fault. That's very true. And then I caught the first sort of 20 minutes of, of the game and I was... They were defending really well. It was nil-nil until up about 75, 80-ish minutes, I think, or something like that. And they were apparently defending very, very heroically, which is, you know, great to hear. You were like, oh, could they get a point from this? Could they maybe even nick to your goal? The fact that it's then gone to 3-0, I'm just like, oh, were they like the little engine that could, and this has just broken their spirit. And then the next game against France or Germany is going to be like 12 nil. Because <laughs> all really the teams are like, not. well, the only way to guarantee that all three of us get through is to bully Hungary. Well, I mean, you you never know. You you really do hope to not not, don't you? Um, but uh, yeah. it's great that they're in the tournament, and it's going to be fun to, I guess, hopefully see them maybe get a point if they can. Um, they they do have a, a couple of decent players in there, um, you know, and, and they've got some good sides domestically. So there's no reason why they they couldn't produce a, a solid showing. They've got a couple of um, Ferenc Varoshi players um, on the right hand side who will link up well and. As you mentioned, there a couple of um, 
good RB Leipzig players. So it's going to be fun. Fingers crossed for them. <laughs> Fingers crossed indeed. Um, I think that about wraps it up for this episode, unless there's anything I've missed. Cam, I think uh, I think we found everything that we had to talk about so far. But, you know, constant stories developing and it's going to be pretty fun to, to watch it unfold. I'm sure we'll have a lot more to talk about next week. We certainly will. Thanks again, guys, for listening. Thank you for a year of the podcast and we look forward to bringing you loads more exciting stuff in the years to come. Thank you, guys. Much love. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amschel.